G1520 AM. It's time now for the Lamb Macrolane Legal Show. Each show, heard every other Thursday at 1230, will feature different lawyers and their guests from the law firm of Lamb Macrolane. Good afternoon. This is Jim Sargent. And Jim Macrolane. Uh, we're very pleased to be here today. Um, Jim and I have been practicing for just a few years in Westchester. We're uh, shareholders in the firm of Lamb McElane PC, which is a full-service regional law firm based in Westchester with locations in Philadelphia and Newtown Square. We are here today to talk about eminent domain, um, which some people refer to as taking, uh, government taking of property, private property, for public purposes. Um, and this uh, concept of taking of property really goes back to the very origins of this country um, and back into uh, the English system of government. But our uh, United States Constitution and our Pennsylvania Constitution both have uh, clauses which address this. Under the United States Constitution, it's Amendment uh, 5, the Fifth Amendment, and we refer to it as the Takings Clause in that amendment, which provides that private property shall not be taken for public use without just compensation. Um, in Pennsylvania, we have what we call the Eminent Domain Code, which is a Title 26 of the Pennsylvania Statutes is a fairly lengthy um, statute, which has a lot of uh, provisions and a fair amount of complexity to it. But we want to just uh, go over some of the basics here today. Um, and Jim McElane is, is uh, one of the people who has uh, some of the uh, storied uh, history of, um, you know, examples of eminent domain or government taking a property. Um, and perhaps, Jim, you could share a couple of anecdotes about that. Well, it, it uh, can be a very controversial uh, subject when someone's land is being taken. We have been involved in a lot of condemnations for both the condemnor and the condemnee, <clears throat> that is the government agency taking the property, and the property owner whose property is being taken. Property is taken sometimes for easements, for a sewer rights of way. Sewer lines are usually put in long after uh, properties have been built and developed. Sewer lines went into towns that were uh, built with on-site systems and then later found that the ground and land could not uh, handle the uh, percolation of water and of sewage going through it. And... Uh, the municipalities have formed municipal authorities or, or other agencies to put in sewer systems. So then you have the government has to put a line in to collect the water from individual properties, and then that gets collected eventually to a, a sewage treatment plant. And that means that the township engineer will have gone through and decided where the line goes, and that is approved by the local government agency. And then the property owner is asked to sell a right-of-way or an easement across that property so the sewer line can be constructed. Uh, the law requires just compensation that be paid for that, as Jim said, 
And frequently there is sharp disagreement over what is fair and just compensation for the taking of property. Let's talk for a minute about who can exercise the power of eminent domain, which is admittedly one of the most awesome powers of government. So you can start with the top. The federal government certainly can condemn property. Our interstate highway system in the United States, which President Eisenhower was uh, the impetus for, is a demonstration of how the federal government can go into communities all across the country and condemn property. Anecdotally, my uh, family had a, a uh, hardware business located on uh, the harbor in New Haven, Connecticut. I-95 went right through the heart of that business. The property was condemned. That was the end of that business for all intents and purposes. That's the kind of thing that can happen in our country, and one may react adversely to that, but that's a fact of our existence. But all the way down, governmental entities, whether it's the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania or the political subdivisions, townships, uh, school boards or school districts, um, authorities such as a sewer authority or a uh, solid waste authority um, or a township can can uh, take um, property if need be for the public good. So those are the sorts of entities that can engage in takes. That's right. And you have uh, roads such as the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Uh, which was which is run by the Pennsylvania Turnpike Commission. That is a, an agency created by the legislature in Harrisburg, and for the purpose of building the turnpike, operating and maintaining it, the legislature established the Turnpike Commission and gave it the power of eminent domain. So when the turnpike was first laid out in the 1940s, Surveyors went across properties in the, primarily in the northern and central Chester County and laid out where the road was going to go. And some of those properties, many of those properties, were then farmed. You had a colorful anecdote about that with uh, your family. I well, uh, there was a family in the, in the farm business uh, in Malvern, in Charlestown Township, and they had just constructed a new barn. And two of the uh, sons had just come back from the war, and they were going to reestablish their farm business. And it was a dairy farm and, and, and uh, continue on with their lives and do what they wanted to do. And one day some people showed up with a, a tripod, now we call them transits, and were taking measurements on the property. And the oldest brother said, what are you doing on my property? And the man said, we're laying out a turnpike. And brother said, what's a turnpike? That was a new term in 1948. And the Turnpike Commission went through and that took the uh, barn, took it right away from them, and laid out uh, lanes of the Pennsylvania Turnpike. And divided that uh, dairy farm in half, as I recall. Yes, yeah. So there were two, one big one and one little one. <laughs> Both smaller than the original. Right, much smaller. And uh, Route 202 was laid out in the 1960s, and that uh, went from uh, the uh, connection to the Schuylkill Expressway in King of Prussia, through Tredifferin, through uh, East Whiteland, West Whiteland, townships, uh, and connected with the Route 30 bypass, which was laid out a few years after that. 
and the uh, Route 30 bypass started at the connection in West Whiteland with Route 202 and went west into uh, East Cowan and, and throughout there all the way out to uh, uh, Lancaster County line where it continued on uh, in, into uh, Lancaster County. So all of that was a result of takings or exercises of eminent domain. Let's talk briefly about what you what starts the process? What actually has to happen in order to exercise the power of eminent domain? Well, first, the uh, go local governmental body or state governmental body has to determine that there is a public need and a public convenience, public necessity uh, for, for the object of the take. So the first step is to define the need for a highway, for instance, or the need for a sewer system, sewer line. Once the government does that, <laughs> the government engages an engineering firm to go out and, and do a feasibility study and do surveying and propose plans. And the fact that uh, the government decides it needs a road uh, leaves open major questions such as where is the road going to go? And so the engineers and consultants go out and do their plans and come back with their studies and uh, bring that back to the local government, which decides what it feels to be the best location for that given use. Even things like the uh, easy pass interchanges on the turnpike that can be quite controversial. Uh, when the Turnpike Commission was looking to put in a uh, an interchange near Route 29 in the East Whiteland and Charlestown townships. There were initially six possible locations, actually ranging from Tredyffrin Township uh, west, and they finally decided one that uh, was pretty close to Route 29, and that's where the uh, interchange is today. It's strictly computerized. There's no individual working there, and everything is electronic. Now, you have mentioned government takings for roadways. There are, are certain industries that have the right of eminent domain. For example, uh, public utility. We've, we've had experience with uh, gas pipelines in southeastern Pennsylvania. We also have uh, water uh, and sewer utilities that... Are, have the power of taking. And we have um, entities like ECO, which have a power lines that, and on the government side, we also have, for example, school districts. So the same thing would apply. Each of these entities would have to do the study. They'd have to justify why there's going to be a taking. And then they have to meet and adopt a, an appropriate resolution of the entity to um, take the property which has been, uh, or properties, which are necessary for the intended purpose. Am I correct? Yes. And that's a, that's an essential element of this process. And then what do they do? It's fascinating. They file what's called a declaration of taking. Once it's properly authorized by the entity, there is a, a fairly simple document called a declaration of taking. And that's filed in the Court of Common Pleas where the property is located, in the county where the property is located. And that document ends up 
miraculously transferring title from the private property owner to the public entity, just like that, as soon as it's filed. Am I right? That's correct. <clears throat> but the uh, government authority always makes an effort to uh, negotiate a settlement. Sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't. The uh, uh, government entity will engage one or more, sometimes two appraisers, to go out and evaluate the property and determine uh, the fair market value of the property unaffected by the take, and then the fair market value of the property as affected by the take, and try to negotiate a resolution with the property owner. So what you're saying is, in effect, before the declaration of taking is filed, quite often, if, if not uh, all the time, the government entity will go out to the private property owner and say, we need to construct this utility across your property, or we're going to have a flip ramp off of the highway across your property, or we're going to construct a, a new school building on your property, and there will be an attempt to reach out and negotiate before the declaration of taking is filed then. Typically. Yes, typically that's correct. And now, that, that process continues after the declaration was filed also. Interestingly, I, and I want to point out that there's some uh, United States Supreme Court cases which are fairly interesting on, on point, uh, which some of our listeners may have heard of, at least one of them. Um, one of the first cases in the U.S. Supreme Court was in 1875 that, that uh, found that government had the right to seize property and had to provide uh, just compensation for property seized. Um, there was a more recent case, which people may have heard of, Kilo versus City of New, New London, which is an interesting case because it was a governmental agency, a, a redevelopment authority, which took the land, but it took the land so that private uses could be uh, situated within the land taken. And, and there was a real... Um, debate about whether that was an appropriate use of the power of taking. The U.S. Supreme Court said it was. It was in the public interest so long as the redevelopment authority actually was doing something that would benefit the local community, which happened to be New London, Connecticut. So that's an example of a quasi-governmental agency benefiting private uses ultimately, but for the public good. And that's had the imprimatur of the U.S. Supreme Court. Yes, that was uh, used in Philadelphia back in the 50s and 60s <coughs> quite extensively. The um, downtown had become pretty run down. And so the redevelopment authority of the city of Philadelphia, which was given authority by the Pennsylvania legislature, went out and acquired properties which were blighted. The key word is blighted, and that's defined as basically a slum-like property, uh, and these were commercial properties primarily, and the city redevelopment authority went in, acquired these properties, in some cases leveled the property until it was raw ground, and then sold them to private interests. The uh, Center Square office buildings at uh, 15th and Market Street and other properties down there are examples of that. Uh, Penn Center, a plaza, which I think has five uh, buildings, 20 stories or more, they were all acquired by the City Redevelopment Authority and then sold to developers who put big um, buildings up. 
and even that included a uh, former uh, a railroad station that was a landmark in the city of Philadelphia, and that was replaced by uh, tracks underneath what is now the Suburban Station building. But that was that whole concept down there was a big plan that the city implemented with state approval and acquired land from one property owner and then sold the land to a second property owner at prices negotiated by the city. And the second property owner had to, uh, as a matter of contract and commitment, build improvements to the uh, satisfaction of the city. And that's how Penn Center came along and Center Square and those other big buildings. And I think that was applied also in Market Street East, the shopping center uh, around 8th and Market on the north side of Market Street in Philadelphia. That was a redevelopment project that was turned into a shopping center. Now, we've been talking about situations where the government intentionally takes property uh, and it proceeds either through local agencies or through redevelopment authorities with the intent of taking a property and changing it to a public use. There are also situations where the government entity enacts some sort of legislation or regulation which impairs private property, um, and we call that situation a de facto and or inverse condemnation. There are some acts which the government can do without necessarily thinking it's taking property. An example of that is uh, a case in the U.S. Supreme Court, Loretto versus Teleprompter Manhattan, involving cable TV services. That was back in 1982, and, and the New York legislature said that landlords could not interfere with cable TV uh, services providing facilities on apartment buildings around Manhattan so that tenants could have access to cable TV. And ultimately, the U.S. Supreme Court said, well, you can tell the landlords they've got to accept your devices on their roofs, but that's a taking, and they, are, they deserve compensation. There are plenty of other examples of that kind of inverse con- condemnation. Another uh, example is uh, what happens when a road is predicted or an event or a project is announced, but the property not taken. The Exton Bypass was a matter of high controversy uh, maybe 40 years ago, and the PennDOT people announced they were going to be putting in the highway, but the exact location, dimensions had not been determined. And the township was in the position of having applications for building permits, but not wanting to give the applications, knowing that the road was going to go through. And finally, some of the property owners filed in court for a de facto condemnation saying, hey, we can't use our property because PennDOT says it's going to take our property or the one next to it, and nobody knows what the heck is going to happen. So if you have effectively deprived us of the use of our property, then you should pay us for the taking of our property. And that had some impetus, gave some impetus to PennDOT to make some decisions and resolve things and go forward with the actual siting and location of the bypass and the construction of it. Let's uh, pivot quickly to valuation of property. Once the declaration of taking is filed, um, the government entity has a right to go into possession of the property, provided the landowner hasn't filed 
uh, objections, preliminary objections to the taking. But after 30 days, the landlord can go into possession of the property, but the landlord must pay estimated just compensation before it goes into possession of the property. What is estimated just compensation? Well, Jim referred to uh, the government getting appraisers to look at the value of the property before they even engage in the take. And, and typically, a, a government entity will have one or two appraisals from certified real estate appraisers. They will get a value for the property. And in order to go into possession, they will deliver a check to the landowner in the amount of the estimated just compensation. Once they have paid over estimated just compensation, they can go into possession, the government can. But uh, the landowner still can say, oh, that's not enough money for me. And what the landowner can do is to request, there are a series of procedures for this, first a board of view, which is essentially like an arbitration. There are three viewers who are appointed. One of them has to be a lawyer, and that is the chairman of the board of view. And then the procedures are really kind of like a small um, judicial proceeding. If you have a hearing, um, and Jim and I can discuss that in a moment, but that's the first stage. If either party is uh, dissatisfied with the um, results before the board of view, the party can appeal that result to the Court of Common Pleas, in which case there is a jury trial before a panel of jurors, which can be 12 in number. So let, let's talk a little bit about those proceedings. The, the Board of View um, has some interesting requirements. Well, there's usually a panel of three, one of whom has to be a lawyer who acts as the chair. The uh, panels are appointed by the uh, Chester County Court. <clears throat> or any local county court would appoint the uh, panels in its jurisdiction. And it's, they go out and have a view of the property. The title of the group is called Jury of View, and the three people compromise the jury, consist of the jury, and they go out and view the property. And uh, the, con the uh, parties are present, and the party who wants to take the property has representatives there, and the property owner, of course, and the lawyers describe the property to the jury of you who get the opportunity to see as much of it as they want to. Uh, they can walk the entire property if they want to or, or determine what they think is the most appropriate area to walk and get a real feel for it. Uh, and that's a, it's an important element because that is the first impression that the jury of you will have of the, of the case before it. After the view of the property, the jury of you and the parties go back uh, to the uh, courthouse where there is a conference room set up, and the jury of you will then sit uh, as a panel to hear testimony. The property owner goes first with, with uh, its lawyer and its expert witness, and, and the property owner himself or herself may testify as to what uh, they think the property is worth, and they go through, and then the condemnor has the opportunity to uh, present its witnesses and give the testimony as to what it thinks the property is worth. So the proceeding is really very much like a uh, judicial proceeding. Instead of a judge, you have the three jurors, the, the board of you, 
And uh, the witnesses can include the property owner, for example, if you're the condemnee, and the property owner has a right uh, to give his opinion, his or her opinion of value of the property. And typically you have appraisers, you can have one or two or three or four appraisers, people who are in the business of evaluating and valuing properties for purposes of establishing a dollar value for a property, a per acre value, or sometimes, uh, you know, an income um, uh, approach to value. And uh, you can also have engineers. For example, it would not be unusual to have a piece of open ground, open real estate, with uh, some difficulties. You know, maybe there's a slope, maybe there are some, uh, you know, characteristics which would be challenging, and you bring in an engineer to describe exactly how a building could be built on the property, and then the real estate appraiser takes it from there and says, with this building, the engineer has depicted, we could get this kind of value for that property. If you saw the jury of you in action, and if you have been to a township meeting or a hearing of the uh, township zoning hearing board, you would find remarkable similarities. Uh, there are rules of evidence, but there are also informal rules, and the whole procedure and proceedings are much more informal than a formal courtroom. But there's a lot of give and take and argument back and forth, and if, after the conclusion, the, the uh, parties leave and the members of the jury of you will deliberate and uh, come up with a written decision from which any party can take an appeal, as Jim said. There's some very technical aspects of that which require a, a, a detailed examination of the um, eminent domain code in order to make sure that you understand uh, when you can file a, an appeal, if you are going to file an appeal. Uh, and uh, so... Then, uh, if you're a landowner and you don't like the result, you can file your appeal and go up to the Court of Common Pleas. Um, and interestingly, this I, I love these proceedings because you have a jury of 12, and they are entitled to look at, in fact, the code requires, property owner uh, requires, that the jury of 12 go out and look at the property. It's like an, a, you know, a field trip from elementary school. Everybody piles into a school bus or another conveyance. You go out to the property. Everybody walks around and looks at it, and there's an informal quality. It all depends on the judge who goes with you, but there's an informal quality to it because somebody will point at something and say, what about this, what about that? And there will be some ability to interact with the jurors and describe what that is and what this is. Jim has a great story, though. It, it can come back and, and haunt you if you're representing the utility in this instance. I represented a utility taking a right-of-way across a farm in southern Chester County many years ago. And we drove out to the property in a bus with the judge, and all the jurors were there and witnesses, and we got there. And the farmer and his wife were in the process of delivering a calf. And the jurors, uh, all 12 of them, were absolutely fascinated and circled around and spent uh, 45 to 60 minutes watching the birthing process and watching the, the calf, uh, the newly born calf. And uh, as representing the uh, 
condemnor had this sinking feeling that this was going to be a bad result. Um, I don't know if the jurors remembered much of what happened after that, but they're all certainly interested in the new calf. And the farmer. And, and, the, his, and the farmer. And his farm, <laughs> which, which was one of those things you can't predict. You have to sort of roll with the punches in this, in this business. But the fact is, you, you take the jurors out there, they go back to the courtroom. It's much like any other jury trial. You have openings, closings, you have witnesses, you uh, present the case to the jury, and then uh, having taken your best shot at establishing value on either side, you retire. And, and uh, I can remember sitting in the uh, old courthouse here with you, waiting to, uh, to get a, a result from a jury late in the evening. And uh, the result came in and happened to be representing a school district. Jim likes to say that it was the highest award against my client as of that date in Chester County history. But it was less than we offered to settle the case. (laughs) And it was about half of what the plaintiffs had demanded in that case. It was half of what they demanded in that. The jury came back with less than I recommended uh, the client to settle. So um, that's a brief overview. Um, I hope uh, it's um, of interest to those who have been listening, and we've very much enjoyed being here. The information provided on this show does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information and content discussed on this show are for general informational purposes only, uh, please visit us on the web at lammackelane.com or 610-430-8000. We'll get us uh, on the telephone. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Lamb Mackerlane Legal Show, heard every other Thursday at 1230 on WCHE 1520, the talk of Chester County.